Hello and welcome to the Classroom Critics Podcast, a podcast by teachers who love film and love discussing film. And I'm joined today by Michael Mulvey and Walter Freeman. And we actually have a, uh, a modest audience today. Um, by modest, I mean two people <laughs> who are uh, joining us and uh, they may chime in if they feel like it um, and they may not, but they're welcome to do so as we discuss um, Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece, The Godfather Part Two, um, written written by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, of course, starring Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, and uh, Robert De Niro, and uh, cinematography by Gordon Willis. And um, so, 1974. This is. Uh, a follow-up, of course, uh, needless to say, of the uh, Godfather film, and um, this this particular movie was not meant to be. Um, in every interview I've heard Coppola give on um, this particular film, he often will say that uh, he didn't think that there was another story. He did not think that there was any sequel, any additional episode to the Godfather saga that he wanted to, to continue on with. But uh, this was a case, I guess, where Paramount went to him and said, look, we have the recipe for Coca-Cola here and you don't want to make any more bottles. And uh, so he and um, Mario Puzo had to sort of jump, drum up another, uh, another tale. Um, However, part, as, as we will be discussing, part of the story is actually from the novel, from the original novel, and uh, it, it's a kind of a dual story. Um, but before we get into that, this, this particular film is often called, um, and I, I think I have to agree with it, the, uh, the greatest sequel of all time. And um, I guess perhaps you can put Empire Strikes Back up on that list, but uh, it's really hard to, hard to argue with that. I mean, most sequels are considered, you know, they're... they're Pretty pitiful. Yeah, few and far between where they're as good as the original or if equal to Aliens, I thought was actually a good sequel as well. Yeah. yeah. And the whole concept of a sequel before this film was real. I'm like racking my brain. I mean, right. uh, more American graffiti, but that was released <laughs> after this. But. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the whole concept of a sequel, is, you know, this is sort of where it stems from if you think mm-hmm. about it, you yeah. know, um, at least on a you know, on a blockbuster level. remakes, because, you I mean, obviously High Society is a remake of Philadelphia Story type of thing, but it's not a sequel. So, right. Yeah. Right. And uh, one interesting thing is that Coppola got pushback when he wanted to call this film The Godfather Part 2, almost like a, almost like it's part two of a, of a novel, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, the, the It's interesting because the even though the the film company wanted to sort of cash in on the name of the, the Godfather. They, they wanted to call it something different. I mean, the, the idea of Godfather Part Two. They, they thought that people would get confused. What is this like? Is this the first movie with a little bit more? I mean, right. they, they thought it would basically confuse audiences and it would amount to fewer ticket sales. And so Coppola had to fight. Uh, I mean, it, Coppola, Coppola did have complete control of this film, um, unlike the first one where he was... Well, he saved Paramount, essentially, because Paramount yeah. was on the verge of bankruptcy before this, the first film. Right. So they, he could write his own ticket. Yeah, and he could call it whatever he wants right. when it you know, turns out. And so, um, you know, not only that, but in order for him to actually 
sign on to this project, he said, okay, look, first of all, absolutely no interference from mm-hmm. any producer or executive. Especially for casting. Yes. Yeah, because think of what the first one, what do they want? Like Robert Redford for Michael. <laughs> yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Um, who was it? Uh, Danny Thomas mm-hmm. was, right. was up for discussion for The Godfather. I mean, mm-hmm. really. So, um, you know, he got his way. He got it. You know, he got his uh, his asked. You know, his, the salary that he asked for, and he got complete control. You know, which is very different from the first experience. I guess which he thought was a very miserable experience, which kind of deterred him from actually wanting to do the second. He said, "Well, you know, making The Godfather was such a miserable experience. Why would I want to revisit that?" So he just he asked for the moon, and he got the moon, um, which is one reason why it's, it rings so personal. You know, for him, it's there's a lot of uh, autobiographical stuff in the mm-hmm. film, which I'm sure we'll get to. But well, it's uh, also the director's decade that the '70s were, you know, and he was one of the people who was really instrumental in that. Mm-hmm. You know, people wanted to work with directors as opposed to like, you know, just like the film itself. You right. Know, he had a lot of pull, wasn't it? Like they had the directors group there with like Spielberg and Lucas and Bogdanovich and the film school brats, right? Yeah, yeah. You know who all kind of pulled their money together to kind of give themselves that independence to make their own projects. Sure, sure. And then Bogdanovich pulled out of it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it, I'm sure it's uh, no surprise that this film received several Academy Awards. Uh, the first sequel to win Best Picture, uh, Best Director. Uh, one Best Director for Coppola, Best Supporting Actor for uh, De Niro, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Coppola and Puzo. Uh, I believe it was the first time that the that a different actor won an Oscar for the same role that someone else won an mm-hmm. Oscar for. Uh, of course, this is speaking to uh, Don Vito Corleone. So... Um, yeah, and uh, what are your thoughts, Walt, on this? Do you, do you think that the uh, his reputation as the greatest sequel and one of the greatest films of all time is uh, deserved? Absolutely. I, I I'm curious as to you know someone gets this idea. I mean, there there were large films before The Godfather, and someone gets this idea. Let's do a sequel. Coppola doesn't want to do it, but it's driven by that. And and since The Godfather Part Two, you see sequel after sequel that are simply naked sure. cash. Yeah. Grabs, you know, stuff that doesn't need to be made. I mean, this is an odd and comparison. Call it a trilogy, yeah, or a trilogy. It's like Greek or something. <laughs> Quadrilogy. As long as we can wring more money out of it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, I know you're not a big fan of Kristen Wiig, but yeah. her she had a big hit in Bridesmaids, and she refuses to do a sequel. She says there's no reason to get these characters together again that tells a compelling story. And yet here we do. We have a compelling story. You know, whereas I I always take away the sense that Godfather is about family. This is about losing family, the shedding of family. And I always find it kind of interesting that it ends with a reunion of characters, you know, whom are all dead. And yet Michael there, even there, is disappointing them all. He's breaking from the family and starting the alienation. And my only criticism of the film, and maybe you can correct me on this, is the early story of Don Vito Corleone doesn't really come full circle, doesn't end. It just kind of they, they depart from it and end Michael Corleone's story. Well, I think it ends in some ways where he gets his revenge for his father's death and his you know, mother's death, his brother's death, you know, and kind of like that's when he really becomes the Godfather, 
you know, mm-hmm. so then it kind of, it shows two sides to him, too, because you see one side is the family man who genuinely, he's just doing what he has to do to raise his family, you know, and I think, like, Puzo and Coppola both say that this is less of a mafia story, more of an immigration story. Think of how the Italian-American really kind of assimilated to America. Mm-hmm. You know, you weren't allowed to do certain jobs, help wanted no Italians, whatever. So they had to do what they had to do. Sure, sure. Yeah. No, I, I think I think the. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, well, the the risk of this film, if you think about it, um, the idea, the unprecedented decision to make a film with a dual story. I mean, uh, that doesn't happen often. I mean, you can't t- think of one. I can't know, think of an example yeah, of that. It's, prior to that, yeah. In fact, um, it was so risky that an early um, cut of this movie. Coppola showed this film to several of his friends, uh, Lucas, and I forget who else was in the room. Um, and Lucas said to him, you have two movies, not one. It doesn't work. And uh, one reason, I think, for that that Coppola later accounted for was the fact that he had the, uh, the movies, um, the segments split, uh, or the, 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 the changing from one era to the other, far more frequent in the movie. So if you notice, if you watch the movie, the, the segments where you're, you know, they're long. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're pretty yeah, long. It's like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes even more, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I think what he did in, in an early cut was have it like, like 5, 10. And you can... It would have been you, so choppy. It would, that would be uh, far more choppy. So um, Coppola has said that the inspiration was stemmed from an earlier idea before he even thought of doing this film. Was he always wanted to tell a story of a father and son at the same age, you know, which I think is a very interesting mm-hmm. concept. Um, and this was his chance to do it, and um, using once again the whole Don, the whole Don Vito Corleone story is in the novel The Godfather. So they didn't have to write that, um, but they did have to again drum up another. Uh, Phase of Michael Corleone's uh, criminal career, obviously in Vegas. Uh, I, I do think that the, um, the my favorite of the two stories is is the Vito. So yeah, I, I enjoy I like those far, far far more. Uh, I do think it resolved. I think it's a great resolution to resolve it with him finally getting revenge on the sc- scumbag that did this. Because you don't see it until that point. No, you don't. You know, no nope. brutality. Uh, yeah, in, in the fact that you know that he does so by stabbing him in the mm-hmm. in the stomach in such a gruesome way. Oh, he pulls yeah. it right up. But I mean, you do you don't see the brutality to that moment on screen, but it's spoken of because all of a sudden all the neighborhood people, like the landlord right. who asks around about him, and then comes back and is just utterly Jesus. terrified yeah. of him. Um, so so he's clearly been strong arming people and, and enforcing and doing favors. For people, but but you, people still feel comfortable enough to come to him and ask him for favors yeah. too, though you know, mm-hmm. so that there's still that family appeal to him. He, you know, wants to take care of the poor widow. Sure. You know, so there's a humanity that's yeah. in there as well. I, I mean, these two stories aren't just isolated. Um, obviously, we know that they're, for obvious reasons, they're related. But I, I think thematically, they're they're linked to. Uh, they're not just two. It's there's. There's a reason to have these stories told sort of in parallel, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's to unite the themes, but also to contrast the two characters, where Michael's getting a lot wrong, and he's veering away from his father, and what his father originally 
um, some of the principles that his father had. Um, so, you know, Don Vito Corleone is gaining while Michael is losing. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the fact that those are told together, it, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Well, you figure that, like, too, Vito starts out as Vito Antolini, yeah. becomes Vito Corleone. But, you know, and he's Italian when you get right down to it. And Michael's really the first American. Yeah. You know, yeah. so Michael's, you know, an American first, Italian-American second. Yeah. You know, so there's that difference between the ways that they've been raised and, you know, yep. their values, et cetera. And we could, I mean, we can just do a whole episode on uh, Gordon Willis' cinematography. And I just, I, but one of my favorite shots uh series of shots is at the beginning uh, well when he's on Ellis Island and uh, there's that reflective shot of the Statue of Liberty while he's looking out toward it and uh, you see the reflection of it and then he sits in the chair uh, which sort of is a uh, you know foreshadowing of you know the, the dawn in his chair of power and, and he's isolated yeah he's isolated you, you know, know and it's it's that scared little boy yeah you know but I also see him as a as a uh, a little boy who's sort of about to take control of his yeah. of his life, and it's that you know the famous like back of the head shot of him in a, in a way which you know it's uh it's really cool how that how just Coppola does that it just gives us these these foreshadowings all throughout the Don Vito story, like when um, obviously the performance by De Niro is just amazing where he's not trying to imitate Marlon Brando but he's trying to imitate okay what would Don Corleone be like when he was when he, when he when he was a young man, mm-hmm. and he, I think he just he just nails it, you know. And um, you know he doesn't go overboard with like he could have just totally milked the he could have made it a caricature, you know, like doing right. the whole scratching of it, you know, his chin and the overly raspy voice. But he does it. He does it in a very subtle way, like you know, this is what he might have been like when he was when he was young. Uh, he played him very humble. He did, you know, which the character was. I mean, even in the first one, but. humble, but also <clears throat> I think princely. Mm-hmm. Like there was a silent like dignity to him where um, he, almost like, you know, if you met, let's say, I don't know, think of like a famous king or, or queen or prince when they were young. It's like, oh, I, you can just tell there's the makings of a, of a royal in this, in this person. Mm-hmm. You can just tell. There's almost a sense of, of King Lear uh, to it. He has these three sons, but neither of them are really suited. I mean, Michael abandons family and loyalty. Sonny is too temperamental. I mean, I know Sonny's dead by the time the story begins, but he would have been. And then Fredo is just too weak uh, to have done it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so who, which one of them, actually none of them, would have successfully carried on. Michael does to a degree. But, you know, sure. once you see Godfather III. With the III. business portion of it, you know, the father was successful in keeping the family together, and Michael's successful in tearing the family apart. Yeah. You know, yep. kills Connie's husband. Yeah. You know. It's, it's also commentary in the Times, too, you know, that I think that profound conversation that Michael has with his mother. <clears throat> yeah, and can it, you ever lose your family? Yeah, that, yeah. the mother doesn't. The mother is um, completely... Incredulous. Yeah, just... just in, denial that such a thing can ever happen. You know, you can always have another baby. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's why, and you asked the question, ultimately, what does Fredo do? That, and sorry, spoiler alert, but we, yes. we have to talk <laughs> about this. Um, what does Fredo do that finally you know, makes Michael have him assassinated? And, you know, it was very, very strict. He says to somebody, you have to wait, you know, you don't touch him until, as long as his mother's alive. Yes, yes. And that's something that... Um, 
if you if you kind of uh, listen to some of the interviews, Puzo in in, in uh, Coppola had a disagreement about. That's one of the, the I, from what I understood, they had a very fruitful and amiable collaboration from The Godfather One, The Godfather Two. But one point that they really disagreed with, and it was almost a irreconcilable difference, was the fact that um, Puzo did not believe that Michael would ever kill Fredo, that the audience would never forgive them. Forgive him for doing that. That it would just sort of you, you'd lose the audience. Uh, but the compromise was okay. Um, he won't do this. Uh, Puzo said, "Okay, we'll, we'll he'll do this, but not until his mother has passed." Which I think is a I think that's key. Well, it shows how much you know that ending scene where the leaves are rough, you know, blowing away. It shows how much he's alone. Oh yeah, it's tragic. You know? absolutely tragic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, each film, I think, kind of ends with a blend of the holy and the evil. You know, like when they kill all the five family leaders in the yep. beginning of you know, the first film, and then every one of his enemies in the second one, Hyman Roth, oh, yeah. Fredo. It's perfect. You know. Yes. I was just going to say, what was interesting is looking at betrayal and its role in this film. Um, the betrayal of, of Kate when she has the abortion behind his back or the betrayal of Frodo and that scene with his hands in his face, you broke my heart. Um, and I think you want to feel bad for Frodo, but at the, uh, but at the same time, it's it, at the same time, there's a difficult there, like you're disgusted by him. You want to sure. feel bad, but it's a disgust with him on what he did. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No, betrayal's a, a key theme, absolutely. Um, who do you trust, who don't you trust? And betrayal is... I mean, it's the unpardonable sin, right, in that world. Yeah, because you never get the feeling that Sonny would ever betray any of them. You know what I mean? Because, like, even though he was hot-tempered and obviously that's what became his undoing, it was all for family. Like, yeah. he was going to kill, you know, Carlo. Yeah. You know, for her hitting his sister. Yes. You know, and, he, you know, and I mean, you, there's something, you know, for lack of a better term, admirable about that, that he would be that fiercely loyal to his sister. I know. That he'd be willing to do something sure. like that. You know, and he would do anything for his siblings. Like, he was upset with Michael for joining the Marines because he didn't want his brother to die. Sure, sure. You know? Yep. For a cause that he didn't think was, you know, family-oriented or whatever. Exactly. No, I think it's part of the romantic, you know, the romantic nature of the film. You know, obviously, in the real mafia world, you know, um, obviously, they like to say that uh, loyalty is important, but, you know... Obviously, it's until you get arrested by the FBI and they want to cut a deal with you. They all right. they all turn every single time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, you know, obviously, um, that was important to the Corleones. And uh, yeah, getting back to, um, you know, let's talk about let's let's kind of concentrate for a little bit on the um, the veto story a bit, and uh, you know what what's being communicated there. Some of the themes. Um, Part of the you know, we talk we talked about you know a little while ago how you know times were changing. That's it's one of the things that's expressed in the Michael story. But one thing that we're that we're witnessing with the uh, veto story is is you know a lot of the old world principles that did not that that are dying in Michael's time. Uh, like for example, one motif that you see in a lot of these films is are doors being closed on women. And one of the first time, chronologically, one of the first times you see that is when uh, Vito gets the guns. You know, but Clemenza throws the guns through the window, and he brings them into the bathroom, and he puts them in the tub. And uh, you know, most women, 
what, you know, yeah. rightfully what so. My, what, the, what, yeah. what is that? You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Uh, well, get that out of my house. Not Mama Corleone, right? She sits. She turns table. a blind eye. I mean, she, yeah, yeah, she turns a blind eye, and, and not only that, but uh, Vito closes the bathroom door on mm-hmm. her. It's probably never brought up again. <laughs> I think, on one hand, he wants to protect her from that, so she's not culpable, you know, from what could be obviously a crime. Yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah. So it's not just. I mean, but she doesn't know, you know, it can't yeah. be investigated. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I often lo- wonder, too, what would Vito have been had Clemenza chosen the next window? That's true. You know? That's a good point. Would he ever have gone into yeah. Mafia? Well, that's another Godfather theme, Destiny, Fate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, there you go. And then, uh, because, yeah, I mean, who knows? Vito may have just sort of been just, you know, a struggling right. um, grocer, one of millions, yeah. you know, uh, for the rest of his life. But th- this, this fate, this path found him, mm-hmm. and uh, he never looked back. The next day, Clemenza comes up to him and says, "Did you, you know, do you have my goods?" Right? Did you look and see what was in there? He's like, "No, I, no, I yeah, know. yeah." It just shows you, like, even before his life of crime, he was very calculating. He. I think one reason, one of the reasons why he was very successful as a, a career criminal is that he understood human nature. Right. And, you know, if you think of it, if he, if he didn't apply it to criminal life, maybe he would have been successful in another way because mm-hmm. people who are intelligent on that level where they know human nature, how people work, could sort of apply that in many different areas. So, yeah, he says, I'm not interested in things that don't concern me. That's a brilliant answer. Right. <laughs> well, and you think of it, like, both he and Michael were brilliant people readers, too. Oh, yeah. You know, like he wasn't formally educated. Michael was. Michael was a Dartmouth grad. You know, but they both knew people. You know, yep. they knew how human beings would react to certain, you know, actions, etc. Yep. So they were just incredibly brilliant at, at that intuitiveness that yep. they had with that. Yep. Yeah. I'm going to pause real quick to do a technical necessity. I'm going to save what's going on in this episode um, so we don't lose another one. So we'll be right back in about one second. And we are back, and we are technically where we need to be. All right, so, um, yeah, and I think that, that, I mean, one of the real changes, I think, that Don Vito goes through in the, uh, you know, in that part of the film, you know, I think it has to be when he starts seeing if, uh, seeing the, uh, the black hand at work. I think that's one thing that really affects him. Um, and the injustice of it. The injustice of it. How can it. Italians, you know, take advantage of Italians? Yeah, he, he makes a point to ask that. It's a very, you know, fundamental moral thing right. that he's really arguing about. Right. Why does he bother other Italians? Right. But if you see, the, you know, the, the, the guy that um, takes the dress from him, the, the mm-hmm. boss in the yeah. neighborhood, you see that man is a powerful man, but he's a bit of a buffoon. But you also right. see that he doesn't know, he knows when to wield the power, but not when to hold it back. Right. You watch a lot of you know, Michael's scenes and Don Vito's scenes when he's, expre- you know, exercising absolute power over people. Um, he, he has a way, he, he either gains their loyalty or, 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 or he kills them. But this guy, if you remember, he offers Michael, I mean, Don Vito work, and it almost seems as if maybe they could work together. But then in the end, before he leaves, he has to get up, and he's got to smack him on the cheek in this absolute, you know, sort that of alpha dog. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and he loses him because he just walks away. And you see Don Vito, he touches his cheek, and you realize it's that's, that's when he knows, I can never work for this guy. Yeah. And then later you see 
you know, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the opening when he's talking, when Michael is talking to the senator, and you see that right. sort of uh, how to wield absolute power over somebody, but to, to maintain their loyalty and you know part Here's of the offer. Nothing. Yeah. yeah, I love that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sees he sees a weak a weakness and. His, name, his name's Fanucci, right? Don Fanucci. Yeah. Um, the yeah, Think of how he kills him, too. Right. You know, he mu- muffles the gun in yes. that. You know, he wants to kind of disguise it. But then by the time he is the Don and stabs that guy, you know, he just brazenly yeah. does that. There's sure. no holding back. No, no. There's no muffle on it. No, yeah. You know. Yeah, he uh, he, he brilliantly commits that, the, the, the Fanucci murder, during, you know, uh, the, the parade festival. with fireworks and all yeah. that. So there's, <clears throat> and he disassembles the gun and... Uh, Coppola is great, I think, at, at really kind of like making every murder, every scene of violence unique. You know, um, very memorable things, just like him tapping the light, right? Um, you know, and just hey, what do you got there? You know, just mm-hmm. just making the whole scene memorable. Um, but yeah, he sees he sees a weakness in Fanucci. Uh, in fact, in a, a deleted scene, um, it's key that he takes it out of the movie. Uh, is a scene that shows Fanucci getting getting beaten up by some gang um, that didn't pay him a dime. And there's a reference to it um, when they're sitting down at the table. Uh, Don Vito says uh, something like, um, I know someone who, uh, a bookie who doesn't pay Finucci a dime. Right. Uh, and so he, where the other two guys are just willing to just sort oh, right. of like... Give it right away. Right. And that's, which is right around the time where, you know, Clemenza obviously was deep into it more you know he was kind of up the ladder more than uh, Don Vito was but Vito quickly went ahead of him you know um, because of this talent that he had for yeah. and that's the first time he says I'm going to make him an offer you can't refuse right I love it yeah uh, I also like when uh, when they're at that stage show that vaudeville mm-hmm. and uh, the actor I forget the actor's name he's in every mob movie too he was in Goodfellas um, I forget the actor's name, but you know he's his sh- friend. What's that? The one who plays his friend. Yeah, he the guy who's he plays he, he plays Jenko, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the concierge, the first concierge, and uh, you know he's showing off his girlfriend and right. all that, and, and he, he's like, and Don, Don Vito's like, yeah, you know she's for you, she's good, but for me, there's only my wife and right. son. So yeah, just the whole loyalty thing and. Think of how simple their lives are at that time too, because remember when he gets laid off from the you know, the grocer has to let him go because of Don Finucci's nephew, yeah. whatever yeah. it is. You know, the guy tries to give him the groceries, he's like, No, no, no you know, but he brings home his wife a pear. I know. And she's thrilled. <laughs> I know. You know, it's beautiful. What a beautiful pear. Sure, sure. You know, that's how simple their lives are. <laughs> Absolutely. You know. Yep. But you know, at the same time she doesn't ask a single question when they bring in that beautiful oriental rug. Right. Like, you know. I mean how much a rug how much would right. a rug be? Right. It'd be like the equivalent of buying a you know, new yeah. car for many of us now. Right. I, I don't know why, but I always just—I I was thinking of the Big Lebowski when I'm watching them carrying that rug out of that room, and mm-hmm. then, then you know when he carries the rug out yeah. in the thing. I, I know there's no connection, but I just thought it was funny that they're rugs. I, I, I love that scene too. It's one of the few scenes where you actually can see the whole street. Um, oh right, when they walk it back to the yes. apartment. You know, this is before CGI. They had to transform that whole street. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not like a lot of period films where you can just sort of film, like, this one little section, this one little block, and everything outside it is completely current, contemporary. They, you know, if you see the making of uh, any making of footage, you know, they had to, like, you know, sort of displace a lot of people in that neighborhood who agreed to it, of course. But 
that whole section of, of uh, New York was completely brought back in time. Mm-hmm. And it had such a richness yep. to it because it's a, you know, it has a lived-in quality, which obviously they're all close quarters and tenements, but you see some of the CGI films that you reference, and they're soulless. It doesn't look like any human has ever set foot no. in some of these landscapes, yeah. whereas they, you know, they interact with the landscape. I mean, like you say, he breaks the gun down, he throws it down the different vents, yep. and it just, there's a, there's a humanity to it that's yeah, missing. Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. And you know, this, again, the cinematography is beautiful. It, it was shot, uh, and this be, kind of became a trend after Gordon Willis's work on The Godfather's uh, One and Two. You know, where period films had this brassy tint to them, where a lot of the orange, you know, the oranges and reds mm-hmm. and yellows were emphasized, and it just gave that look, you know, um, aged look to it. Yeah, almost like a yeah, I know what you mean. Almost like sepia toned, like black. Yeah, white. right, right. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, you know, we think of like that section of New York too. If you go there, you know, like it is almost like you know a microcosm of that time period as well. You know, remove a few things and it's you're right back there. Sure. You know, there's still the you know mom and pop Italian store on the corner. There's still the yeah. Italian restaurant down the road where yeah. everybody goes. You know. Yep. So exactly. You know, I think a lot of a lot of it probably has you know become gentrified. Obviously, there's probably a Starbucks at the corner too. But you know, like. Um, it's some of those places of like the north end of Boston. It's you know love to go there, great food, but it's almost like it's an amusement park for non-Italian people. It's true too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Although they, they did chase out of Starbucks. Recently. Yeah, which good for them. But yeah, <laughs> as much of the Starbucks game. Yeah. So, um, you know, anything else about the Vito story? That uh, you know, the scenes in Sicily, of course, really helped make the movie. You know, just him going back to his roots and. Mm-hmm. Uh, bringing his sons to connect them with where they where they came from and it's, be, it's a beautiful I mean just visually some very beautiful I think scenes. it's the first time you really see De Niro how brilliant of an actor he is too you know and that's a really subtle role yeah. it's not showy you know it's not a lot of like chewing the scenery type of mm-hmm. scenes to it but but very powerful nonetheless yeah he just that's not spot on nails it yeah. As I recall, too, De Niro, in a lot of his career, is an amazingly physically transformative mm-hmm. actor, you know, gaining weight, gaining right. muscle. You, know, you think about him in Cape Fear or Raging Bull. But, um, you know, Don Vito is, a, is an immigrant and a poor one, and he's, he's very thin in this. And I know he'd done earlier movies where he, he was muscular, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, or yeah. around that time. Yeah, Mean Streets or something yeah. like that. And he did put on a few pounds for the final... If you notice, I mean, not not much. And he did in his subtlety do, but he does in the last couple of scenes use the same uh, dental implant that Marlon Brando used. Yes, as well. There was another scene too, and this is different. But when Fredo is exploding at Michael at one point, and he said, "I think he's sitting in the chair," and he finally explodes at him. And if you look at him, he looks very much like Marlon Brando. The face you you can you can you know it's it's almost as like I was watching. Brando's ghost showing through John Cazale in yes. that scene. Yeah, it is, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's interesting. It just, I mean, it is true that you know you can have two, three different kids that, in different ways, look like their parent or parents, but yet look different from each other. <laughs> Emilio Estevez and Charlie yeah. Sheen and Martin Sheen. Yeah, they all look like Charlie Sheen in different ways, <laughs> or, or uh, yeah, Martin, Martin Sheen in yeah. different ways. All right, so let, let, let's switch over to. Uh, Michael's story, which again, it's that's an original, um, new concept that was written specifically for this film, and uh, um, it shows, you know, it, it continues on. You know, I mean, the the Corleone family is out of New York. You know, they 
still control it in a way, I guess, through uh, Frank Pentangeli, who now controls what was the Coleman family, um, even living in the same house. But, uh, you know, like, like, you know, every single Godfather film, they're taking a step up in power. You know, now they're not just in the pockets of uh, local judges, local politicians. They are in the halls of the Congress, Senate. the Senate, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. they, they have, uh, they do business with senators, you know, uh, so they've, they've elevated and uh, they're more powerful. Not only that, they're going into other countries, you know, they're doing business with governments. Mm-hmm. Um, at least they're trying to. And they're completely American, too. You know, as much as Michael says, you know, like, in, remember he told Kay in 10 years of Corleone family would be completely legitimate, but they're completely American by that time, too. You know, yep. the, the orchestra that they have there, nothing oh. remotely Italian. Nope. You know, Pantangeli's like, well, where's the some of the canopies? <laughs> and they know, mock Give him. me some sausage and some peppers. You know, yeah. yeah, not one, not one <clears throat> Italian in the, whole, right. in the whole orchestra, and they start. And then when they play the Italian music, they go to Pop Goes Weasel. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's just it's a great way of showing the the times changing. Well, you, you know. think of the wedding in the first one. The mother gets out there and sings an Italian yeah. song in Italian, yes. and the elderly gentleman does as well. Yeah, and then this you know display of same type of thing. Very and, very waspy, right? Uh, atmosphere. Um, but with the way the senator reacts to him, though, you know, like you people. You know, you come out here with your shiny suits and your, right. you know, olive oil hair. He's not afraid of the Coyotes at all. No. He's or just, you know, not afraid to, like, categorize them or be discriminatory towards Italians either. Right, right. You know. And, you know, sometimes we'll, I'll show this. When we show, I don't know if you get the same reaction where, you know, during that scene where you mouth off to Michael, you'll, you'll sometimes have a student class say, what, why doesn't he just, what is, why does Michael just shoot him? I like, say, so you, you're not, you're not yeah. going to kill a United States senator. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you want to avoid... You'll get his mafia. revenge. That's the thing. That's Michael's, you know, like, processing when he says, you know, here's my offer, nothing. <clears throat> he knows he's going to get him. He's just biding his time. Later in the Congressional Investigation Committee, he makes up this impassioned pro-Italian-American yeah, speech. He, he's totally a destroyed human being at that yeah. point. And unfortunately, I see that in modern politics today, when oh, yeah. people stand up and speak for things that you know is a complete compromise of their morals and ethics, and you just sit there and you're just like, Ay. Yep. yeah. He dismisses himself from that part of the hearing because he's he's now in the pocket of uh, of the Colonials. So yeah, and I, you know, just it shows. I love the little conversation at the at the table at the party at the beginning, um, where it shows like the mother like sort of pointing at uh, what's his name, Merv, <laughs> the uh, Connie's new boyfriend. Oh right, yeah, Melvin or something. Like that. Mm-hmm. And then he, she, you know, Troy Donahue. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Okay, yeah, yeah. and he, uh, she also points to Fredo's wife. Yeah, and the way Michael dismisses him too. Yeah, you know, you know. Uh, I don't know what she said in Italian, but it's probably not very complimentary. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and it's Diana. That's the the wife's name. Fredo's right. wife. Yeah. Right. Right. And uh, never marry a wop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so, just like his father, but very unlike his father, you know, they're waiting in line for him, but um, they're not doing so with this uh, level of respect that's almost godlike. You know, um, you have Frank Pantangeli. Right. Showing him... You uh, can't get in to see Michael. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah, Fredo right. says to him yep. yeah. And when he finally does get in there, you know, he's, um, you know, he's not granted anything. Right. And he, he is not afraid to show disrespect to Michael, you know, in a, in a way. 
And again, it just shows you times are, times are changing for the Corleone family. Even though they're getting more powerful, Michael is, you know, he's, lo- he's losing a lot too in the process. And, uh, you know, in his reference to what he said in the uh, earlier, in, in the Godfather one where he says, uh, Kay questions him, you know, he said in five years the Corleone family will be completely legitimate. And that was like seven years ago, so. Um, then we have the assassination attempt, right? And that, that sort of uh, that gets things rolling, and we we learn that there's a there, there's a, there's a betrayer in the family, and we don't know who. Um, turns out it's it's Fredo, right? So uh, here's here's something, and I don't know if there's an answer to this. I mean, there's there are debates about this on online. You know, we did Fredo do this intentionally? Mm-hmm. And like, did did he know what he was? Or did they manipulate him because they knew he was a simpleton or something yeah. like that? Yeah. I, mean, what, I think it's a little of both. Yeah. We're not told exactly what Fredo did. I mean, no. I mean not that that's, it's, it's essential to the story, but it's a lot of things are, are left vague in this movie. Um, well, he knew enough to know that the senator, you know, was in, like, a Hymenroth's pocket, too, though. Yeah. You know, he's like, you know, the... Have one who's leading the committee is one of Ross guys. Sure. So they let him into like that secret. So he must have been in a pretty deep. Wait, so he does confess to Michael too. You know, I was so angry at you. Yeah. You know, that should have been me. You stepped over me. Right. That's not how I wanted it. Yeah. I'm smart. I like people said. All right. Yeah. But I mean, there are two camps. Some people believe that Fredo did actually sanction a hit on Michael, um, and we don't. I don't know if we know. We don't know. I think it way. probably was something silent and tacit that he just kind of like didn't come out and say do it, but he knew it was going to happen, so he let it happen. Yeah, which yeah. I guess is tantamount to yeah. But okay. he's, he's very sloppy when he lets it slip at the um, at the Cuban right. show that they're watching. That he lets it slip that he knew Johnny Olin when he told Michael he had, and then Michael paid, and then you look back and Michael's just got his head in his hands yeah, as he realizes. It. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yep. no, you're broken. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. you, you know, I think that that's Pacino's, you know, deserving masterpiece right there. Sure. You know, the fact that he won for Center of a Woman is, you know, just really, I don't know, like Art Carney and Harry and Tonto, really. Who won that year? Art, Art Carney. Art Carney. Under Harry and Tonto. What? Okay. All yeah. right. Now it's coming back to me. Yeah. <laughs> Some, yeah. uh, some gift Oscars like, for a few actors. Yeah. I mean, he was probably never going to be nominated again as an older guy. Yeah. Let's give it to the sentimental favorite. Pacino's young. He'll have plenty of opportunity. Sure, sure. You know, but... Yeah. I mean, you look back on the performance itself, it's considered to be one of the greatest film performances by an American. Oh, really yeah. so. He's lost yeah. it. I mean, it's, it's such a... He's so subtle and yeah. quiet and still, and you watch his films now, Pacino, and he's just the opposite. He's got this... Uh, one character he seems to be playing over and over the hoorah character from yeah. Scent of a Woman. He plays grizzled now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I want him to go back to a film where he's still an inner. I mean, there's so much power thrumming from him as Michael Corleone. Donnie Brasco is really good. Yeah. You know, I thought he yeah. was great in that. But there was one a couple of those that Danny Collins, I think it was called. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty good. I enjoyed good. that. Yeah. That was good. Okay. Yeah, it was yeah. a little more subtle. You I know, seen it. I'll, no. have to, I'll have to look at it. Yeah, I guess when it comes down to it, when you're Al Pacino and you're directing him, I mean, do you tell him to tone it down? Do you tell Al Pacino to right. tone it down? Yeah. And that's what you need. To. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I don't think I'll ever have that opportunity. Nah. But, uh. <laughs> so yeah, it is, it is a fantastic performance. It's very, the whole, I mean, the whole um, film is just very. 
subtle and subdued. You know, it's it's uh, it's not a flashy film. I mean, it's a uh, especially in the Michael scenes, they're just so underplayed. Well, right. I want to speak to that for a second because you know, again, for as long a film as it is, there's a great economy of storytelling. And I, I was reading a Roger Ebert review where he actually criticizes that the, the flashbacks break up a lot of the film. But, you know, when I was teaching film studies, and we always usually start by showing Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, and look, believe it or not, you actually have some students that will say that they're bored, bored by that film. And then you're like, this does not bode well for the rest of it. But yeah. then you show The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. These films are not, you know, action thrill ride epics. There's something, there's a stillness to them, and the kids can't look away. And so it says a lot to, you know, the, the, the power that Coppola puts in each scene that even scenes where there's no action, there's almost no movement, you're transfixed. They're, yeah. They're hypnotic. Especially the scene where Kay reveals her abortion to Michael. Oh, Michael, you're so blind. Yeah. You know, the kids are just like, they're on their edge of their seat. Like, what? What? They, have, they don't see it coming. No. You know. Cop- Coppola had uh, reservations about that. He didn't. He wondered if it would be too soap opera, yeah. melodramatic. But I, I don't, I don't think. I, th- I think it gives Kay some depth that she really lacks, you know, because that's one thing that Diane Keaton has said that she, you know, felt that she was just such a drip, yeah. You know, and I mean, her character is not really that developed. Think of the women, the female characters in the movies, the wife, you know, the, you know, his Corleone's wife is never fully developed. Not really. You know, Kay is just kind of a mousy. Michael, why'd you come back? You right. know, that type of thing in the first yeah. one. And, and then, Connie doesn't yeah. do much. You know, she got nominated, um, you know, Talia Shire, but, yeah. you know, and I think the character was a little bit more in-depth, but not really fully developed either. Yeah. Sure. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, the, the movie r- resolves with, uh, with Michael. Um, I almost get the sense, as he's sitting in his chair there at the end, before the flashback, that he's already regretting what he's done. Yeah. Where's my life taking me? Right. Is this really what I wanted from my life? Were it not for the fact that his father was, you know, shot, would he be in this seat? Yeah, yeah. He's all, he's all alone. Because remember, you know, this isn't what I wanted for you, you know, Senator Corleone, you know, send sure. him to Ivy League school. Right. You know, become a lawyer, become illegitimate. Yeah. You know, the American dream. Well, he says, I think he says at one point in the film, it, I think he says it to Fredo when Fredo was trying to do a mea culpa. He says, it's not easy being Don Corleone's right. son. Yeah, and um, yeah, the flashback I thought was pretty a pretty cool touch, and uh, I, I guess Brando was supposed to be at that that shooting. That right, shoot. he never showed up. He didn't show up, and so he had the scramble. What a what a great way to write your way out of a problem, right? It's like let's make it a surprise party, and he hasn't right. gotten here yet. You know, yeah. that's, that's pretty. Uh, but then they they all go out of the right, room, and then Michael is there. He's just left by himself. Yeah, you, you can almost see that encounter that's coming where he has to tell his father he enlisted yeah um, it's well it's really surprising how young he looks in that scene too compared to like the rest of the film yeah he looks babyish you know little young boy it's just, it's just his hair was combed differently yeah. that's really all it came yeah. down to you know so yeah because everything that Diane, you know Diane Keaton and he were involved at that time and she's just like how can you resist that face yeah. you know because I mean he was just so you know so handsome and you know so perfect looking you know and yeah you know she said that he undresses you with his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> um, was that before Keaton dated Woody Allen or after? I, I think it was before. This yeah. was like around 72 when they started. But, you know, it was such a, you know, with her, I mean, it was Warren Beatty, 
Pacino. It was the seventies. Like poor woman. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. Well, another another classic. Um, I'm not sure if we'll get to Godfather three anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy we got to this one. So. Uh, thank you all for, for joining us today on the, the Classroom Critics. And uh, for uh, Michael Mulvey and Walter Freeman, I am Bill Ivers, and we'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>